Thank you, Nell. Let's open up to Romans 3. Romans chapter 3. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we'd love to have them. If you would pass them to the center aisle, uh, Martin or Chandler will pick them up and we will pray for you in this coming week. One way for all. The Bible presents a message one way for all. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Slandering Jesus, writes, I've heard it many times, and so have you. You're having a a discussion with a friend about religion, and you're talking about the necessity of Jesus, and without taking a breath, the words flow so easily from his or her mouth. That's fine for you, but there are many ways to the divine. But saying it does not make it true, but saying that doesn't make it true. In fact, you can be quite sure that those who repeat this politically correct mantra don't understand the gospel. When religion comes up, the conversation often follows three directions, doesn't it? (laughs) And I think this is maybe a primer for all this time we're going to spend with family and friends over the holidays. (laughs) which it needs to be a time of prayer, um, that we want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ as we're around those that we're closest to who may not walk with him. But when religion comes up, often there are three directions. All, the first would be this, all religions are the same. Have you ever heard that? Shake your head if you've heard that. It's everywhere. It's the air we breathe in our clothes. All religions are, are the same. Um, It's the belief that God is on top of the mountain and whatever path you want to take to get up to the top, well, that's your way and it will lead to what you need most. A second direction is the belief systems of the world, all of them are likely to have some virtue and value. So whether you're following Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Christianity If you boil it all down, there's virtue and value in all of them, and it really becomes the aim to find which is best. And then the third way is um, found in Jesus Christ alone. All other religions are attempts to avoid the exclusive claims of Christ. We're sold on that, aren't we, for the most part in this room? That we find his claims absolutely compelling. Which category are you in? I think something that's very important in this age in which we live is to determine that calling on our life of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, wrote uh, in the middle of the 20th century, the gospel is true always and everywhere, or it is not a gospel at all or true at all. And the church seems to be confused and uncertain about this. And I think uh, in times like this, when we are in Romans chapter 3 and we're plowing through this doctrinal field, that God would establish these truths to open our mouths to speak with certainty and confidence. Our tongues are so easily tied, aren't they? Our lips are like the Arctic River frozen over at the mouth. Maybe it's through a lack of knowledge. Maybe it's through a lack of conviction that the gospel really is the plan of God unto salvation. The only plan that he has given, this redemption that has come down to us as God has sent forth his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because I think it's really a challenge today to speak the truth. 
It's a tough assignment to say you're certain. (laughs) You're certain about what you believe, really? That's kind of arrogant, isn't it? It's often the retort. To say that you believe in objective truth that's fixed in history and the promises of God. But I want you to know from start to finish in the Bible, that's exactly what it says. It says that there, there are only two ways a person can go. Only two. You hear that from me all the time, don't you? That's okay. As often as it's repeated in the Scripture and as urgent as it is for the times in which we live, I think it's important for us to really soak into that. It was true for Moses. It was true for Joshua. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's two ways. It was true of Elijah at Mount Carmel. When the prophets of Baal were there and they had won the hearts of of God's people, and Elijah comes and challenges the prophets of Baal to a showdown at the, at, at the altar, and God showed up and with fire. Sometimes a generation is so far gone that God needs to reveal himself through fire. And the people said, the Lord, he's God. The Lord, he is God. But Elijah had laid it down clearly. Choose this day whom you will serve, Baal or the Lord. Serve the Lord and live Or follow Baal and perish. David spoke of two ways. Psalm 1. The godly man who walks with the Lord doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer, but his his delight is in the law of the Lord. Compared to the wicked in verse 4 of that same psalm, the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that's blown away with the wind. Isaiah spoke of two ways. You come into the New Testament, and you find right off the bat, Jesus spoke of two ways. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the crowning teaching of Jesus' life, he, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there are who find it. Wide and broad and accommodating is the way that leads to perishing. It doesn't matter how sincere It doesn't matter how um, thoughtful you may have reasoned it through. Jesus said, there's a narrow way and it's through me. And he went on to talk about good fruit and bad fruit. And he closes the Sermon on the Mount by saying, wise is the man who hears these teachings of mine and does them. He will be likened to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when the rains come and the winds blow and come against that house, it will remain standing because it's built upon the rock. Not so for the foolish one. What does that mean? Anyone who builds on any other foundation than Jesus Christ. Christ calls them the foolish or not so. For they build on the sand. And when the winds come and the storm blows and the floods rise, the house falls and great is its fall. And listening to the way that the apostles preached in the book of Acts, I find this incredible. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had just gone to the prayer meeting at the temple, and they saw the man who, who was lame, and he was sitting by the gate of the temple, and 
He was begging for alms, and Peter uh, looked at him, and he said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And he rose, and he woke, and, and he walked, and he was um, leaping and singing and praising God. And so this didn't cause a little fallout in Jerusalem, and the relig- religious leaders called them in and said, look, you're preaching this message of Jesus everywhere. Stop preaching. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus' claims are amazing. Jesus said one way. Paul said one way. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Even a cursory reading of the Bible tells us that one day all of humanity will bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and declare Him Lord. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that He is Lord, what an unspeakable privilege it is for us on this day to do it freely and from a heart of praise. But one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Where are you with that? You will confess in your moment of wonder, love and praise, or it will be the sad beginning of a Christless eternity. Paul concludes his arguments in Romans 1 through 3. That's where we've been for the better part of this year. And he states in verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Paul was a Jew. He knew about Jewish exclusivity. Is he the God of the Jew only? Since probably 99% of us in this gathering today are not Jewish, that would be a bad end, wouldn't it? But he's not the God of the Jew only. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And Paul answers the question, yes, he's the God of the Gentiles also. Which is a tremendous message for us today to fill us with hope. That the one true God is the God of all. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, black or white, male or female. From whatever tribe or tongue or kindred or land you are from. There is one God who bids you to come to Him today by faith. So the gospel, while exclusive in its claims through Christ alone, is wide open for you, even you, if you would come with the open arms of faith this morning to receive it, that Jesus really did die for your sins, which is important because you come to terms with the fact that you have broken God's laws and And you have sinned against the holy God and stand under his rightful judgment that God would do the incredible. He would send his own son to bear your sins once and for all that you might be forgiven forever. That's a glorious hope for us. So how do I want to unpack this in the remaining time? Uh, This way. First, if you're following with your insert, is God the God of the Jews only? I want to expand upon that a little bit because... 
The Bible declares that there is a one true and living God. He created all things. The Bible begins with this statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no attempt to explain who God is. There's no defense on the existence of God. It's a declaration. The God who's always been created everything you see. He created man in his image. Then sin came. And the power of sin affected everything, everybody. This whole world is a groaning creation that awaits redemption, which will come when Jesus returns. In Genesis 6, we read that God was sorry he ever made man and flooded the whole earth. He put a rainbow in the sky as a sign of his covenant with Noah. I saw one this week. Did you? Did you see it this week? I'm reminded of that every time I see it. Of God's mercy, God's promises, God's covenant. In time, God called Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation. He would have a son named Isaac. He would have a son named Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Old Testament is the story of this nation and the promise all the way through that God would bring a redeemer, God would bring the Messiah. The prophets spoke of him. David did, Isaiah did, Jeremiah did, Malachi did, all of them did. And in Galatians 4, the scripture says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We know reconciliation and redemption through Christ. In the previous chapter in Galatians, chapter 3, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. It doesn't end there. <laughs> There's a church, I'm told, on the West Coast that has a, a picture of all the major religious leaders um, on the pantheon from ancient times to contemporary times, religious leaders with varying, conflicting beliefs. And the caption has Galatians 3.26, which I just read to you in part, in part. It contains, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. But it doesn't include this part of the scripture. Through faith, we're all sons of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul continues, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Paul, who was a Jew went on record by saying that the Jews cannot claim exclusively the one true God. In fact, the Old Testament speaks of God's plan of bringing Gentiles like us into the fold of his forever family. God promised Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. And Paul's argument is because there is only one true God, then he is God of all creation and calls both Jews and Gentiles to faith in him. So Paul's preaching had, had this tone. As he would go into a city, where would he go first? 
He always went to the synagogue first. Maybe you've read that perplexing statement throughout the New Testament, uh, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. Paul went to the Jew first because they were the first recipients of God's covenant promises, but it was not meant to be hoarded. So he would go to the synagogue, to the Jew first, and with, almost without exception, there was categorical rejection of the gospel and of Paul, and he moved on to the Gentiles. I saw this in Acts 13. Listen to how Paul preaches. He went to the Jews. He was there for several weeks in Pisidian Antioch. And uh, on that third uh, weekend, I believe, Paul and Barnabas spoke out, spoke out boldly. They came on the next Sabbath, and, um, and they were preaching. The whole city had gathered around to hear Paul and Barnabas preach. And as they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We're turning to the Gentiles. And a large measure of his ministry was given as an apostle to the Gentiles, he himself being a Jew. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice. This is the best news we've ever heard in our life. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. When I turned the chapter into Acts 14, and Paul's in Lystra, and there was a man sitting there who couldn't use his feet, Paul, with apostolic authority and gifts, was able to heal him, and the place, the city went nuts, and in a loud voice, Paul said to the man, stand upright on your feet, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done... They lifted up their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us, and, and Barnabas, was, they began to call Zeus. <laughs> and Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands and uh, other gifts to Paul and Barnabas. And when Paul and Barnabas heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out and said, oh no, we're men just like you. Why are you doing these things? We've come to bring you good news about the one true living God that you should turn from these vain things to serve Him and to serve Him alone. And this is how He preached to them. To a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He always started with creation with the Gentiles. Always started with creation with the Gentiles. With the Jews, he could move down the road. They believed Genesis. They believed Moses. They were monotheistic, fiercely so. But he always started with creation. What, the, what does that mean to Gentiles like, this, like us, especially Gentiles who for the last hundred years have been told we've evolved from a, a cosmic slime? Why is that important? Because there's a God who has breathed into us the breath of life. We're created in His image. We are created for His glory. We are created, therefore we're owned. And because we've fallen short of His glory, He has come to redeem us through Jesus Christ. Your life matters. 
You were created in the image of God for purpose. And it's found in Christ. In chap- chapter 17 of Acts, there was, when he was in Athens, Paul was so provoked. He was Jewish with a heart for the Gentiles, but he was monotheistic. And so when he walked into Athens and there were more idols than there were people who lived there, Luke records his feelings, his feeling of, of being, you know, provoked in his spirit. And as he was kind of touring the city, he saw that they had poured a slab and put a, a label by it to the unknown God. In case we missed one, we want to make sure we pour a slab and put a little monument to him so he doesn't get irritated with us and cause bad things to happen. So to this unknown God, and Paul saw this as a springboard, what you therefore worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Let me tell you about the one true God, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made with hands, nor is served by any human hands, as though he needed anything. He's not hungry that we should feed him. He doesn't need a platter of food to to appease him. If he had a need, he wouldn't tell us. If he was poor, we couldn't loan him anything. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and everything. Is your God that big? Your life, your breath, your everything. That's the God I'm proclaiming to you. That's the God who has sent his son Jesus Christ here to this earth to accomplish in history once and for all the payment of your sin in a one-time sacrifice. In him we live and move and have our being. So is God the God of the Jew only? (laughs) Praise be to God, no. He's the God of all. And there's only one way to him because he set the standards of it. Now notice what be secondly, and not so lengthy a point. Jews and Gentiles battle different stumbling blocks. I don't care where you go in this world, what culture you go to, they're going to have issues because we're all from the same human tree. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul has presented one way of salvation, which is for all people. Salvation by grace through faith excludes boasting. We cannot boast about anything. Last week we looked at the the boast-free gospel. We cannot boast about anything. No family tree is without sinful roots and so we cannot boast and should not boast except in Jesus Christ salvation by grace is is the only way of salvation for everybody so often people when they hear the exclusive claims of Christ they say things like well this is exactly uh, the, the the train of thought that leads to genocide and all these religious wars we would say rightly understood, no, it doesn't. Each nation has its own set of stumbling blocks, prejudices, cultural pressures. I mentioned the Jews were fiercely monotheistic. They believed in one God. The center of their faith was Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which comes from the Hebrew word Shemei, which means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And with conviction, with their conviction, came a sinful exclusivity. Hey, the way we understand God is He's our God. 
not yours. Us for and no more. You Gentiles, those gross things you eat, your immoral practices, you make us sick. The Jews looked with condescension upon the Gentiles. William Barclay, in his devotional commentary, which is strong on history and Greek word usage, but awful with theology, nevertheless, here is an example of, of Barclay, who, who wrote that Jewish men thanked God that a Jewish man would often thank God that he had not made him like a, a, as a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. The Jews said, God loves Israel alone of all the nations of the earth. Alone? That's only part of the message. Indeed, God did enter into a covenant with them, but not alone. It was, it was God's intention that Israel would be a conduit of blessing and grace through, through the Messiah. In fact, that was one of the burning questions in the early church in Acts 15, where they had the, the Jerusalem council. Gentiles um, don't have to become Jews in order to be saved. So that was the baggage with the Jew. What about the Gentile? Well, on, on a totally different field. Gentiles tolerated everything. Nothing was off the table regarding spiritual truth. The more the merrier. Paul's description of pagan culture early in Romans 1 is a, is a, is a picture of this. And in 1 Corinthians, he said the Jews, they, they, they wanted signs. And the Gentiles, they sought wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So the answer is the same to, to whatever culture you're in. The cross resolves it. The cross leads us to the God we need. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. What you do with the gospel is the most important decision before you. And here we see in clear terms one way for all. No matter what family you're from, no matter what background you're from, no, no matter whether you're a male or a female, bond or free, Jew or Gentile, it's the same way for everybody. The way of the cross, the way of Christ. Which leads us thirdly, only one way, the offense of the gospel. Christianity is is in danger, really, in our culture of being morphed into the culture at large because absolute truths are categorically rejected and anybody who speaks in those terms is an outlier and to put on the periphery of, of life, canceled. And everywhere you look, whether it's in the movies or in the popular culture, it's, uh, life is presented with no absolute truths. It's whatever you want to make of it. The plot line really doesn't matter. Make it mean what you want. There's no sense of hope or resolve. There's no ultimate meaning in life. The, the best we can hope for is to grab onto the fleeting moments that pass us by. But philosophers almost seem to be Secular um, philosophers seem to be in agreement with this. The 21st century is marked by profound sadness. And so the secularist today says, all of this is nonsense, the whole issue of religion. There's no unique revelation in history. Hebrews chapter 1, which says that God has spoken through prophets 
now has in this day spoken through his Son, which we believe and receive by faith. There's no unique revelation in history. There, there are many ways. You just pick out the one you want. Religions are inadequate. You need to boil, boil them down to get what really is the essence of each. And some even advocate we need to harmonize all of them and just give one world religion and everybody needs to get on board. Then we can have a religious mandate. All agree, and some would say all, all the major religions agree together, don't they? Re- really? <laughs> I, I, I hope you'll challenge that thought if you hear it in conversation by simply saying, that's just simply not true. Judaism rejects that Jesus is the Messiah. Christianity, Christianity says he is. Both can't be right. Islam declares that heaven may be gained by the good outweighing the bad in your life. Christianity says if we had a thousand lifetimes, our goodness could never make us right with God. Hinduism says that God has been incarnated in thousands and thousands of ways. Christianity says that the incarnation is a unique event happening only once when the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory because of sin, thus the cross. So everyday conversations we're confronted with. You mean to tell me Jesus Christ is the only way? I pray in this message it would equip us all to say very soon to someone, yes, he is. And I have found his claims to be absolutely trustworthy in my life. And I bank the future of my soul and my life on what he promises and what he's done for me. So Alistair Begg was helpful with this thought. As we look at logic, we all can be wrong religiously. We all can be wrong One can be right and the rest can be wrong. But we can't all be right. Can we? No. So, I don't know what kind of internal struggles you're doing with the claims of the gospel and the claims of Jesus Christ. But what I would want you to know clearly today, based upon this text and many others we've shared is that this call is for everybody. Even you. Who may come, whether you're Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, regardless of what nationality, you may come. You may come this morning by faith to Jesus Christ. To say in your heart of hearts, to cry out to him, Lord, save me and be merciful to me through the work of your son how may I come keep your good works to yourself and while your friends and others and even yourself may view them as good works God doesn't view it that way you can't earn his merit you can't earn his grace it's a gift you mean I don't have to bring anything I don't have to do anything 
Not with regard to salvation. What happens is when you come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart is transformed and you begin to long to please God with your life. It's not perfect this side of heaven, but it's a change that comes with salvation. Who may come? You. You may come. How may you come? By faith in Christ alone. When may I come? Listen to James Boyce, who, who answers that question with great skill. Are you a child here this morning? Are you a child? If you are, and if you can understand what I'm saying now, you can understand three things, little ones in our ranks. You're here by design, by the way. We don't have children's church because we want you here. You have a one on Wednesday night. You have Sunday school at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. When the church gathers, we want you here because we want you to see the men singing. We want you to see your, 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 your mothers and the ladies in, in the body singing. And you're part of that. Because in time, we're wanting you, by God's grace, to turn from your sins and believe in Him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. If you understand three things... You're old enough to sin, you're old enough to die, and you're old enough to come to Jesus. For he said, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you're older. You don't understand, Pastor. I've lived my prime. I'm old. I'm set in my ways. That doesn't mean you have to die a fool. You may be thinking that you probably should have come as a child, but that it's too late for you now. You may say to yourself, I'm getting along in years and it's getting harder to change. That's true. The old do get set in their ways. It is why it is good to come to Christ young. But although it is harder to come to Christ when you are older, it's not impossible. With man it's impossible, but not with God. And it is never too late as long as you draw breath You may not be able to do much for Jesus because of your advanced years, but he can do everything for you. You will not have much time on earth to serve him, but you will have an eternity in heaven to praise him. And maybe you're in between. And you're saying, well, you might persuade me to be a Christian one day, but... I got things to do. Don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what a day will bring forth. In the tissue paper existence called life on this fallen planet, today's the day. Not because I said so, but because the Spirit of God is bearing witness with your spirit that you're not right with Him, and the only way forward is for you to repent and to call upon Christ. And what should this make us as we seek to declare this one way for all? I pray that God would make us a humble people, a kind people, a gracious people, a tolerant people in in the right way to understand tolerance, which doesn't mean that you've got to accept everything as equally valid, but tolerant in the sense that when someone does hold to a different view, you're going to love them in Christ. 
Alistair Begg once, ag once again brought this insight to my mind this week. Have you noticed how many, many in the church are just dropping out? They'll hit youth years, enter into their college, and they are gone. He says, do you understand that we are losing the younger generation? Do you notice how those who are teens and in their early 20s don't, don't like anyone who's mean? <laughs> I mean, Beg says, you could steal from the grocery store, and that's fine just so long as you're not mean. You just can't be mean. They don't like mean people. By and large, from a secular perspective, the vibe they get of conservative Christianity is that it's full of mean people. How do they get that vibe? Maybe because we are. Or arrogant. And who wants to share their heart with an arrogant person? So, as we hold this out, I close with this. Far from uninviting, the message of God has come to me. <laughs> Not me, but Him. Come to Him. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. I often mention George McLeod in his famous piece. I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his name in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's men ought to be and where the church people ought to be about. Even so, may that be true here. A thousand times over. So as we say amen in just a moment and go out into the many pathways of our life, may we take his name with us. And may we remember it's one way for all. And to say to those along the way, why don't you come and join us? as we follow him. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we come to this time of close and decision, it really is a time for that. Father, thank you for this time in your word to consider what you've done through the work of your son. It's an exclusive message because you've, you've, you've defined the terms. But when we look and we see that you're a kind and gentle savior, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be, to be like you. For those who need to surrender their lives to you today, may they do so with urgency. And for all of us, to hide this truth in our heart and not be ashamed of you in our generation. Lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.